First of all, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever run in a race in your life? A real running race. Anybody running a race? Only a few people have run a race. Now, anybody ever run in a race uh, over a mile? Over a mile. Three miles. 13 miles. 26 miles. There we go. We got one, too. So I, I decided several years ago, um, I, I felt tremendously out of shape. Um, and round was not the shape that I was looking for. Um, so I decided to get on a treadmill. And I started running. First, at first it was just walking. Just trying to, to lose some pounds, to feel better. I was getting breath. I was having a hard time breathing, just walking up steps. And then I, I started running. First, I was trying to see if I could run a mile. And then as I mastered that, it was three miles. And then six miles. Next thing I know, I was doing six miles every day. I was running pretty great. And then I thought, you know what? I'd like to see if I could keep this going. So I wanted a goal in my mind. So I signed up for the Chicago Marathon. Never run a marathon in my life. I didn't have really an idea of what it was like to run a marathon, but I contacted someone who did, and they gave me a training schedule. So I began to train six months in advance for this marathon. And I'd run and vary my, my schedule and trying to get myself prepared and how to hydrate yourself. And uh, I was ready for the actual race when the day came. And, and what happened was is that you, you actually don't run the full 26 miles until you get to the actual marathon. You run 20 miles three weeks before so that when you come the day of the race, you still have that six miles to go. And there's a goal for you. Because if you've already done it, you have a less desire to do it. What I wasn't prepared for, I mean, I was prepared that it was going to be a long race. What I was not prepared for was a few different things. First of all, the day that I ran, it was 39 degrees. And it had rained. So we had to arrive at the tent at about 6 a.m. And I hadn't slept well the night before. Actually, the previous two nights, I had so much anxiety of running that when I get there, it's just mud everywhere. And And as a runner, you don't want to get your shoes wet. So they would take jewel bags and they'd tie them over their, their feet, but you couldn't sit down to even stretch. You're trying to stay on your feet, and finally they call you to the starting line. Well, there are 45,000 people running the Chicago Marathon, and you get there and you can't move. You can't get away from different people. You're standing there, and there's a countdown clock before you even hit the starting line. And as I'm getting ready to run, uh, they say how many, you know, you see how many minutes you have. They hear an announcement over the screen uh, or on the, the PA system, and then I started getting hit in the face. And what happened was, is that people start bringing these sweats and clothes that they're going to dispose of before the race. So they take them off and they just throw them, trying to get them away from them. And they're hitting you in the head. And at first I'm like, this is not a good start. I'm already cold. My feet are already damp. I was not signed up for this. And then some things happened that I never, ever thought happened. And I'd I'd heard about the stories of it until I actually saw it. I couldn't believe it. The bathrooms are a little far away. And some people are pretty serious and they don't want to leave. So they just go to the bathroom right there. Men and women. It's crazy. And you're just, you just, I, I, I'm like, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> I didn't sign up for this kind of race. I didn't sign up for this. I, say, I came to run. And then I'm like, I'm trying to get excited and put that out of my mind. And I get ready to, uh, I see the countdown clock and it says, go. And I'm like, I'm ready to go. But there's 45,000 people that are in front of you. <laughs> you're not going anywhere. You don't cross the starting line for almost 10 to 15 minutes after the bell rings. So you get there and you start running and there's so many people you can't go anywhere. You can't run that fast. You can't do what you want to do. So you're running like this, trying to wait until everybody, the crowd, the, the, third, the, the herd kind of thins out and spreads apart. So finally you start running and you're running and, and you see all these people that are just lined up all over Chicago. You go all these different neighborhoods, and, and you're trying to keep your pace. You're trying to keep focused. You're trying to keep hydrated. I mean, there's porta potties throughout, and, and, and it's amazing just to see people running all these different places, and, and, and you get tired as you run. 
And there it comes a point in time in the race, right around 20 miles, you hit what they call the wall. The wall. Where you don't want to run anymore. And I was tired. I was tired of seeing and ru- seeing people running around being crazy. I was tired of seeing people go to the bathroom in front of me. I was tired of getting hit and run into. And I'm like, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up for this race. I, I came to just run the race. But the reality is, is I wanted that medal. And that medal only is given to those who cross the finish line. And they know if you're being legit or not. They put a, a, a tag in your shoe that actually sends out text messages when you cross different parts of the race to your family and friends to let them know where you're at in the race so they can t- see you and meet you in different places. And it comes to the point of the race where I just kind of stop and I start walking because I'm tired. I'd, I'd been up all night and, and I was, my body was just ragged. And I'm like, I don't want to continue on. I, there's a part of you that wants to quit, but you know all these people are depending on you. People are cheering you on. I even had a, a friend of mine who was a former student of mine jump in the race. He'd been keeping track of me and decided to run alongside me to encourage me. But when it came down to that last mile, he moved out because I only could cross that finish line. And I, and I couldn't get that medal until I crossed that finish line. And finally, I come in and I'm running. And I cross the finish line and they put it right over your neck and it was just worth everything then and there. All the training that I'd done, all 26.2 miles run. What an accomplishment. But you know, you don't get a medal unless you endure to the end. And I think many people start on the, the walk to walk with Christ, thinking it's all going to be great and it's going to be fun. And the reality is, is we're getting hit, we're getting shoved, we're having things happen to us, we're tired, we get cold, we see things that we don't want to see within church and in life. And we feel boxed in at times. We feel tired and we want to give up. We hit walls and we want to quit. But James is telling us, you're going to experience a lot of suffering in life, but he who, you have to endure to the end. Endure to the end. And this is how you endure. This is what you're going to have to deal with. And he develops this this case, in essence, as he's sharing with these scattered believers who had experienced all kinds of injustice. They had been run off of their family lands. Many of them had lost their reputations. They'd lost their businesses. Some had lost their families. They were enduring injustice. They were being taken advantage of in the new places they lived. Their wages were being denied. They were seeing rich people prosper. They are seeing even their church leaders at times treat wealthy unbelievers better than they're treating themselves who are trying to follow Christ so generously and sacrificially. There's jealousy. There's envy. There's ambition. There's suffering. There are struggles. And they just want to go, I want to quit. I want out of the race. And James says, no, 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 no. If you're going to follow Christ, you've got to continue to run that race. You're going to endure all these different things that you didn't expect. But let me tell you how to endure until the end. How to live the life that God wants you to live. How do you continue to fight on in the midst of suffering and hostility? How do we do that? As Christians, people come to church, we worship God. We're all great with giving God praise and experiencing the miraculous. But the reality of your Christian walk is seen in the menial and in the mundane how you love your wife, how you take care of your children, how you do your job, how you engage in conversation, how you keep your word, how you interact with your neighbors, how you go about your daily tasks. It's not in the the boast that we make and how we show up. It's how we continue to run the race that the reality of our walk with Jesus is seen. 
So today, I encourage you to open up your hearts to, to what God has to say. And may we all open up our hearts and open up the Word of God to see what God has for us, how we might truly endure until the end. What are the principles and the truths and the tools that we can take from God's Word is God the Holy Spirit is speaking through James, not only to them, but transcends through time, speaking to us in our situation and in our lives. How do we apply these truths that we might go forth changed and encouraged to be the people God wants us to be so that we might truly endure the end, that we might get that medal as we cross the finish line. So let's pause and ask God to bless us, to open up our hearts, to receive the truth. Let's pray that he would speak to us. Let's take a moment to pray for his blessing on the message time. Well, Lord, our God, we are humbled because we know how great you are. We know how often we have a tendency to complain when life doesn't go the way that we want it. We want to assert our rights. We want our own ways. Lord, we are great with giving our praises on Sunday, but we are terrible uh, on Monday morning. We often deny you with our words, deny you in our marriages, deny you with our children, deny you as we go about our work. We fail to acknowledge you to seek you as God. Lord, we ask you to speak to us today. Show us how we might endure until the end. How that we might not let all of these things that we weren't expecting in life as they come at us, how we might persevere through them so that your name might be magnified. So speak to us. Show us your truth and help us to live the lives you want us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in James chapter 5, and we've already set the stage a little bit. We know that James is writing to these basically disenfranchised people. And he starts off in verse 7. So follow along with me. If you have a Bible, please try to follow along as much as you can. And he says, be patient. He gives an imperative. It's a command. He says, therefore, brothers, uh, brothers and sisters, it's a generic term, aldelfos, uh, or aldelfoi. It's a plural, but it really just means people. Be patient, therefore, people, my brothers, my friends, until the coming of the Lord. Now, what he's saying, first of all, is this, that if we are to endure to the end, it requires the one thing that almost every single one of us lacks in the United States of America, patience. We are a very impatient people. When your cell phone doesn't work right, when you can't swipe very well, when you're in traffic, when you have to wait on a plane on the tarmac when it's not taking off on time, when you have to wait in traffic and the light turns green and the person in front of you doesn't move, we have a tendency to be impatient. We do not like waiting for anything. But that is exactly what James is calling us to do. Now, what does it mean to be patient? Impatient or patient is the self-restraint which does not hastily retaliate against a wrong. It is the self-restraint that does not easily retaliate against a wrong. Meaning that when someone wrongs you in some way or a perceived wrong, then you don't fly off the handle immediately. Now, I don't know about you, but I am not a very patient person. I've had to learn to be patient. I'm still in process of being patient. I have a hard time being patient with my wife. My children are in traffic and when, in remodeling my house and saving. It's not, it's, but it's something that God calls us to do, is to learn to be patient. Now, how do we be patient? Here's the first step. Patient means, or being patient means relinquishing control. Relinquishing control. We have a hard time. We all want to be in control. Um, if you've ever been in a car and someone else gets in the driver's seat, you want to drive. You want to be in control. Some of you cannot relinquish the remote control to your TV because you have to be in control. 
we have a control issue. We, we have this, this illusion that we can control everything and anything in our life. And when it gets out of control, we get fr- frustrated. Philip Kennison, in his book, Life on the Vine, wrote this about the word patient. He says, in English, this noun, patient, refers not only to the character trait, but also to the person under the care of a health professional. Indeed, the latter usage developed out of the notion during the Middle Ages that anyone suffering patiently was an actual patient. Hence, what being patient and being a patient have in common is this. Both require that a person come to terms with yielding control to another. That is... Rather than simply viewing oneself as an actor, in both instances, one has to come to grips with being acted upon. We have to relinquish control. That's what it means. We can't control everything in our lives. We can't control the situations that we're in all the time. Oftentimes, it's not about what we do. It's how we react to what has been done to us. How we respond to that spouse when they say something harsh to us or they misunderstand us. How we respond to that boss who seems to overlook us. Or treat us unfairly. We have to learn to relinquish control. Now, how long are we to be patient? That's the question that I often get. How, how, long, how, do, how long do I have to endure this? Well, James tells us, look at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. For us to be patient, it requires us to remember Jesus' coming. See, we have to remember that Jesus is the ultimate judge, and vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He is the one who ultimately is going to make all wrongs right. He is the one who's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. Now, we do have the luxury in the United States of America. We can stand up in different things if we see mistreatment, especially if someone someone else is being mistreated. We are to stand up for them. But there are times where we are going to mistreat it in ways that are beyond our control. And we have to understand and remember or actually give ourselves over to God, yield to Him so that He is the one who ultimately will interact on our behalf. Because he sees our suffering. He sees what we are going through. We have to remember Jesus is coming. And James then gives an illustration from farming to the second part of verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me. See how the farmer waits for this precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. Now, we're not an agrarian society. Some of you have grown up in areas where you had to, to, to deal with... Um, different farming things. Like with myself, I actually grew up um, uh, close to a farm. My, my town was basically a farm town. And I, I grew up going to my grandparents' farm. And we would get in the truck after every rain. And we would go around and check every field to see how much rain each one received. Because my grandfather knew that a farmer had to be patient, needed so much rain, not too much rain, and, and couldn't have too much sun. Uh, or if you have too much sun and not enough rain, your crops are destroyed. In 1988, our family lost a lot of money. A lot of farmers actually lost their farms because there wasn't enough rain. And you have to make sure to take care of your crops. You have to to weed them. You have to feed them. You have to cultivate them. And it takes a great deal of time. It doesn't happen overnight. And that's what James is trying to say, is that God is working in ways that you can't see. It's not all obvious. It's not everything that you see right in front of you. And that's why many of us have a very hard time going through the mundane and the menial, because we want to see the miraculous. We want to see the fire coming from heaven. We want to see the transformation right in front of our eyes. We want to be entertained. And if, we want to, if Jesus were in the business of doing miracles every moment, the crowd would come. But you even see after Jesus had done the miraculous and everybody comes to him, he withdraws for a period of time. And his disciples show up and they say, Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you pulling away from everybody? You're just gaining a following. Come on, everybody wants to see you. And he goes, no, that's not why I came. I didn't come here to be a sideshow. 
I did not come here to attract the crowds for that. I came to teach them about the kingdom of God. And he withdraws from that region to go to someone place else. So we have to learn how to follow in, in the miraculous and the mundane. And miraculous does occur. But there's a reason it's called the miracle, is that it happens outside of the ordinary. It's the mundane and the menial that we have to learn to follow and understand that God sees that. And he will reward us for being obedient in the middle of that. We have to remember Jesus is coming. And by giving us this illustration about the farmer, he is tangibly illustrating for us the need to renew our perspective. We have to understand and look long term. We have to understand and look at our lives differently. Not in our, we have the tendency to let our other personal experiences, what we've been taught by family, what we experience and see things around us, and that tweak our perspective and take us off from the pure perspective from the Word of God. And he's saying we have to renew our perspective. It's like the, the young man who wanted to be a missionary to India. And he applied to the London Missionary Society. This was actually in the 1800s. And so he, uh, they decide, the Missionary Society says, we have Mr. Wilkes. He will perform the test to see if this is a qualified young man to be a missionary. So he tells the young man to be at his house, which was several miles uh, from his. I mean, not everybody had cars. This is the 1800s. He goes, I need you to be at my house at 6 a.m. promptly. So the young man is there promptly at 6 a.m. And Mr. Wilkes intentionally keeps the young man waiting a few hours. A few hours he has the young man wait. And then he comes in and he introduces himself. Hello, young man, I understand that you want to be a missionary. Is that right? He goes, that's correct, sir, I want to be a missionary. He goes, well, I have some tests that I need to give you. He goes, yes, sir, I'm ready. He goes, what's the first test? He goes, I want you to, I want you to do this for me, okay? Do you have some education? He goes, yes, sir, a little. He goes, okay, let's see how much education you have. Spell cat for me. Young man was caught off guard, furrowed his brow. C-A-T, cat. He goes, marvelous. Good job. Now, spell dog for me. <laughs> Young man is cut off guard, and he goes, gritted his teeth, and said, D-O-G. He goes, wonderful. You're going to do great at spelling. How about mathematics? Let's try mathematics. What's two times two? And the young man answered. He was perplexed, but he answered it. And he goes, very good. Great test. Thank you. Uh, we'll be in contact. And he sends the man on his way. That was the extent of the test for him to be a missionary. The young man was a little perturbed, but he went on his way. And that night, he met with the missionary. Mr. Wilkes met with the missionary society, and they said, what say you? Is this young man qualified to be a missionary? He goes, yes, he is. And he said, well, how did you know? He goes, first of all, I, I, I try to insult. He, he, he says this, and I, I want to make sure that I get this correctly. He says, his testimony and character I have duly examined. I tried his self-denial. I made him come at 6 a.m. He did it. He said, and then I tried his patience by keeping him waiting. He did it. I tried his humility and temper by insulting his intelligence. He did just fine. See, he understood that what patience really was is that God is doing something in us so he can do something through us. And this man put him in tests in order to bring out his character. It's finding out who we really are when no one is looking. And he understood that we have to, we have to change our perspective and see things differently. Now notice verse 8 in our text. James writes, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Notice, this is the second time he mentions it in his many verses. In verse 7, he says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now again, be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now this word establish is actually pretty fascinating. It means to strengthen, make firm, to render constant, confirm in one's mind. The idea is taking a root and, and enduring all of the different things that come at you. And it's really the wonderful doctrine of perseverance. 
This is one of the oldest doctrines within Christianity. Really was developed within the Reformation where uh, people would say a sure sign of one's salvation is that you will persevere until the end, that you will go through and you will not give up. And as Christians, we have to persevere or endure to the end. We have to continue to follow him. Strengthen yourselves and keep on keeping on because Jesus is coming back soon. Now, for some of us, we might say soon. I mean, during James's era, which was, this is probably the oldest of all the New Testament letters written in about A.D. 44, written before the different Gospels were brought out, before the book of Revelation, before the epistles of, of Peter. This is probably the earliest uh, book in the entirety of the New Testament. And he doesn't teach a lot about the coming of the Lord, but we would, they thought immediately that Christ was coming back right then and there. Now, we say 2,000 years has passed. Does that mean that Jesus is not coming back? No, no, no. We have a different understanding of time than how God does. For example, if there was an author of a book and he sits down and he's writing about a different character and he says that he's writing that the character gets up and walks to the door and turns the doorknob and then uh, the writer, as he's writing this down, his uh, wife calls him, so he puts the pen down and he goes back, has dinner, comes back. And uh, he might say, well, I'll work on it tomorrow. And he shelves, let's say he shelves the project for six months. And then after that, he comes back and starts writing again. How much time has passed to the character in the story? He still goes to the door and opens it. But to that man, all this different time has passed. See, with us, God has a different understanding of time than we do. Matter of fact, Peter draws this out in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through 10. He says this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and as a thousand years one day. A thousand years to us, one day to God. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So if we think of one day as a thousand years, or a thousand years to us as one day to God, God's been two days that he hasn't come back yet. It's a little different. And it could continue on. Our point, and the point of the biblical authors, is to be ever ready that he might come at any moment. We don't know when that will be. It could be before I finish this message or even finish my sentence. We don't know. He could come back at any moment in time. And James is telling us that we need to keep that idea in our mind that he is going to come back. And notice what James does next in verse 9. He transitions. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The idea here, again, is immediacy. Christ is coming. Christ is coming. The judge, who is also Christ, is coming. It's about our speech. He's addressing our speech and our words because James understood that rather than being patient, we have a tendency to complain. You ever had a tendency to complain? Um, I've been around most of you. I know most of you pretty well. You're pretty good at complaining. We all are. I am too. We have a tendency to complain when things don't go our way. The Israelites were great complainers. They complained so much that God finally said, I'm going to keep, I'm, I'm done. I mean, he judges them because of their constant complaint and grumbling against him. God takes our complaining seriously. And we have to understand that if we're to persevere, we've got to watch what we say. It means we've got to rein in our tongue. We've got to watch what we say to other people as we're going through this hardship and endurance and how we interact with the people that are around us because our words can hurt and we can't complain. And that's what they were doing. They were complaining. Look how they're being treated. Look what's going on. Look all the suffering I'm enduring. God saw it. 
oftentimes when we complain, what we're really doing is trying to get people to side with us and sympathize with us. We want people to agree with us. And he's saying at times what we need to do is not complain, but take it to God and put our real trust in him. And we have to learn to reign in our tongues. Now look at verse 11 for a moment with me. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Now, steadfast is the temper which does not easily succumb under suffering. Forms of the Greek word used here are used in different uh, uh, parts of the scriptures, and they means literally stay in the same place, and carries the idea of remaining steady and not giving up under trial, not quitting. James began his letter with a call to steadfastness in verse 2 through 4, under trial, and we saw that holding up uh, through the gods and afflictions, afflictions and difficulties of life is actually the pathway of sanctification, the progressive road to becoming perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, what James is telling us to do is as you're going through this hardship, don't try to find a way out. Remain in it. Remain where we are. Why? Because God's doing something in you so he can do something through you. You know, it's amazing to me that when you talk to many Westerners, about suffering in different countries, they pray, pray for an end of that regime. But if you talk to the suffering Christians in that country, they don't pray for an end of the regime. They pray that they might be able to testify underneath faithfully, underneath that regime faithfully. There's a difference. See, because Westerners, we, have an, we are allergic to suffering. We don't like suffering. I'm not saying we go out and look for it. But I'm saying is we don't know how to suffer well. That's why we need to talk with our brothers and sisters who have gone and endured such suffering and learning how to, to be and testify underneath our suffering to who Christ is. It's like the story of the little boy who uh, was playing outdoors and he found this fascinating caterpillar. So he went to his mom and he said, Mom, can I keep the caterpillar? She said, sure. So she gave him a jar and he took what any little boy would do, take some grass, put some, put some uh, uh, leaves in it, put a little stick and then he'd close it up and he'd take it in his house. And he'd watch this little caterpillar play all the time. And he would go and crawl up and stick and he'd eat different things. Well, finally, the caterpillar crawls up the stick and s- starts to do something strange. And he brings his mother in and he says, what's it doing? He says, well, the, the caterpillar is transitioning to become a butterfly and is building a cocoon. And after so long, it's going to break out of that cocoon and be a beautiful butterfly. And the boy was so excited that he was going to have a butterfly. And so he took this, he took and watched every day to see if the the butterfly was going to break through. And then finally one day he sees a little bit of a hole. And he sees the the butterfly trying to come out. And he's but he sees the the butterfly struggling so much that it can't get through. And, And he gets impatient. And so he goes and decides to help the butterfly and goes and gets scissors to help cut the cocoon open so that the butterfly could come out. And so when he cuts the cocoon, the butterfly falls out but looks strange. Its legs are all swollen. The wings are very small. It looks like it's, it's filled with different liquid. And he asked his mom what was wrong, and she didn't quite know. So they had a friend who was a college professor, so they took the butterfly in, and he said, what did you do? And he said, well, I, I cut the, the cocoon open so the butterfly could get out. He says, you don't understand the butterfly, son. He said, the, bo- the butterfly was meant to struggle. See, in coming through that hole, it was actually pushing all the excess liquid outside of its body into its wings so it could fly. By you cutting the cocoon, the butterfly couldn't fly. And though you were meant to help the butterfly, you actually hurt the butterfly in the long run. See, what's the point of that? Is that God's trying to teach us to fly. And we need to go through that suffering at times and that struggle because God's doing something in us so he can do something through us. 
that's what we have to remember to keep in mind. And that's what James is trying to keep before them. He says, remain where we are. Think about what God's trying to do in you and through you. That's why he says in verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. See, Job, remember the story of Job. This is a man who feared God, probably during the era of the patriarchs in in and around Genesis. This is a man who is blessed with wealth, a large family. I mean, great influence, a respected elder in the community. And he becomes a pawn in Satan's game with God. And, he, and Satan attacks him. And he ends up losing all of his family. They're all killed in a moment. And then he loses all of his money. And then he loses his very health. And what does he do? I mean, what does God do with his life? Does he curse God? His wife even says that his breath, he actually says this in the text, that his breath becomes so bad to his wife. Everything is bad about his life. And, and his wife finally says to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. And then he says this, and I've used this verse against my wife, and she hates it, and she corrects me and says I'm using it out of context. Because I say, you talk like a foolish woman. And I end that, and she's like, yeah, 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 right. Jesus wept when he looked at you. So, um, but... We have to have the full context. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all this, Job said nothing wrong. And in different translations, it says that Job did not sin with his lips. He did not sin. He did not curse God. Even though he was going through all of this tremendous hardship, he held fast to his integrity, knowing that he would see God's vindication in some way. And we don't know if he ever did fully understand it and fully behold everything that he would go through. I mean, But we know that his life has influenced and encouraged billions through time. That how many of you, when you were suffering, decided to read through the book of Job and draw encouragement because God was doing something in him and through the prophets of old. That's why he says, you know the steadfastness of Job and through the prophets who went through great hardship to make the name of Jesus Christ known. Even the giving up of their very lives Their lives became tangible and living illustrations to the reality of who God is. And he is challenging and encouraging us to follow their example, to draw encouragement from what God did in their life and the knowledge that God is going to use your life and the hardships that you've gone through to influence other people for his glory and your joy. And we have to understand and understand this and rely on God's purpose being accomplished through us. I mean, if we're to persevere, it requires us to reign in our tongue, remain where we are, but also rely on God's purpose being accomplished. And that's what this text goes back to say. He says, and you've seen, in verse 11, and seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And what he's saying is, is that God's not out to get you. Sometimes we think the suffering in our lives is because of things that we have done. And that happens at times. But he's saying, no, no, no. In this case, that's not it. That the Lord is compassionate. The word in Greek is splunkna. And it means from the gut. I mean, the depths of God's being. He wants your good not to harm you. God isn't out to take you out. He's not out to get you. That Lord, our God, is compassionate and merciful. That he doesn't treat us according to the way our sins deserve. And that he wants people to come to repentance. Just as we saw in 2 Peter 3, verse 8 through 10. That God wants people to come to repentance. He does not delight in the death of of evil people. He wants them to come to the saving knowledge of who he is. He wants to show his purpose in your life. And that means persevering. 
through the different hardships, knowing that God is accomplishing something, doing something in us so He can do something through us. Now let's look at verse 12 for a moment. But above all, he ends this, this entrance, this uh, whole little thought right here with above all. This is priority for you. Over all the things I just said, this is priority. This is important. Now it seems a little bit odd that he would introduce this concept as being that important, but it has huge significance. He says, but above all, brothers, do not swear or make, um, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. It's a puzzling verse, but when you really break it down and examine it, you really find out something that's being said here, is that people had a tendency, in Jesus' day, they would make promises, and they would swear by something to show the validity of the promise. But oftentimes, they were using the object that they were swearing by as it had a lesser significance, meaning that they didn't really have to keep the promise. It's almost as if we have in our our modern American setting that you got your hand behind your back and your fingers crossed. It's kind of the idea. I'll say it, but I don't really mean it. And Jesus actually talks about this in Matthew chapter 23 when he's addressing the religious teachers of the day. He says, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if they swear by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. Meaning that the temple didn't mean anything, but it's the gold in the temple that's really where the value is, and that's what I'm swearing by. And Jesus is saying, No, 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 no. no. You need to practice honesty. Don't try to find ways out. We all look for loopholes. Right? I didn't say it completely that right way. And we try to find ways out. And Jesus is saying, let your yes be yes and no be no. He's not saying you never take an oath ever. Uh, there are some denominations that actually say this prohibits any oath taking whatsoever in allegiance to a country, saying a pledge of allegiance. They will never ever make an oath or a promise. That's not what James is talking about. What James is talking about is saying, be honest in your dealings and don't try to fool people. In other words, don't make rash promises. Don't make rash promises. Don't just say different things and not really mean it. Resist making hasty promises. Don't promise something and don't do anything about it. That's why he says you might fall under condemnation because you're going to say you're going to do something. And when you say you're going to do something in the sight of God, that's a big deal to God. You put yourself on the line. And he's saying we have a tendency when people come at us and we want to bold and make ourselves look better than we are, then we're going to make great oaths. He also, he, what he also means here is be careful in how you talk to other people. You have to respond carefully to others. Respond. Don't have to try to promote yourself. Respond carefully. Think about what you're about to say to them. Don't try to promise something and not deliver. And realize something. That promises mean something in the sight of God. We have to understand that. We have to realize that God takes promises seriously. And here's what I mean by that. And I'm going to use it as a marriage illustration. Um, Imagine, and I've had couples come to me and they say, you know, they're living together and I say, uh, are you going to get married? They say, well, we don't need a piece of paper to say that we're married. Okay, I've heard that. I mean, I'm sure many of us in this room have heard that. Some of you might be in that situation now. And let me challenge you with this. That piece of paper, you do need that piece of paper to show that you are married because that piece of paper indicates a promise that's being done. And when someone says to me, I don't need a piece of paper to show I'm being married, this is what they're really saying. Allow me to translate. It's saying, I don't love you enough to cut myself off from other things. It's saying, I don't care for you enough that I'm willingly removing myself and committing myself only to you. I want to keep my options open. Because, see, when you commit yourself, that's a commitment. That's a promise. And when I married that woman right there in the second row, I made a commitment to her, and not just to her, but to God, which is probably why I was so freaked out. 
on my wedding day. I knew that I was standing before God and I was making a commitment and a promise. And God takes promises seriously because you know why? Because at the end of the day, it's your promise that shows your identity. And here's what I mean. At the end of the day, your looks might fade. Your hair might fall out. Your weight might balloon. You might experience different issues physically, mentally, emotionally. But the one thing that you can control is upholding your promise. See, your promise is putting your character at stake. God makes promises. When God makes a promise, his very character is at stake. And in our culture today, we've lost that. We don't make promises. We, we say them like it means nothing, but God takes them very, very seriously because he is a promising God. And so we have to rectify that and make that promise. If we're going to make a promise, then don't just say words. Realize that you are invoking God Almighty, that you're standing before God and saying that. See, it's like Tim Keller, who's pastor of uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. He says this, When you make a promise to someone, both of you know that you're going to be there with and for them. You've created a small sanctuary of trust within the jungle of unpredictability. See, there's a power in the promise. For example, when when, uh, we we were married, our our kids are growing up, and one of my kids heard about someone in our family or a friend of ours getting divorced. My child came to me and they said, Daddy, are you ever going to divorce Mommy? I said, nope. I said, till death do us part. As far as it is is dependent upon me, as God is merciful and gracious, I will do everything in my power to follow through with that. And that creates safety for that child. Now, some would say, well, you don't know the environment we were in. I may not. I may not. But I do know what statistics say, that if some couples would just endure over a period of time, that it gets better. It really does. It gets better. And I know that what it's done, and they're now coming up with so many different studies on what divorce has done to children, and people say, well, it doesn't affect them. It affects them for, for a long time. Some of you bear those scars. And I know that sometimes you have things happen to you that you cannot choose, that it wasn't your choice, that that spouse left, and you've gone through a lot. That's not my point here today. My point, as long as it depends on you, and as much as it depends on you, you keep your word. Are you keeping your word? Are you keeping your word in your business dealings? Are you keeping your word with your family? Are you keeping your word and your commitment with your ministry? Are you keeping your word in your job, at your school, with your loved one? There's a power and a promise. I had a man at my first church who wouldn't sign. Uh, we had a membership thing, and he says, I, I can't sign that. He says, I want to be a member. I said, why can't you sign it? And really, his, his argument was that is a, 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 a kind of a contract of mistrust that you don't trust me. And when I give my word, I guarantee that I'm going to do everything in my power to fulfill it, and that's all you need from me. He was serious. For him, it was all about his word. And if he violated his word, then he lost who he is. And let me ask you this. If it was based on you following through with your promises, what kind of person are you right now? Are you a person of integrity? We've all failed in this. So don't, don't think I'm casting stones. I indict myself how often I have failed in my promises. And I try very, I go to great pains now not to make promises unless I'm ready to fulfill them with every part of who I am. Trying to recover that, and you can too. Because with God, there is forgiveness. That there is repentance. That we can confess our sins and he's faithful and just to forgive us. And we have to put ourselves on the line because realize God does take our promises very seriously. You know, the psalmist in Psalm chapter 15, verse 4, talks about what a man of God looks like. 
And one of the descriptions is, is he who is one who swears to his own hurt and does not change. In other words, he's committed to fulfilling his promise no matter what. Are you, are you tr- committed to fulfilling your promise? Maybe you're one of those couples that are saying, hey, we've been doing this and I, I, I don't like that. Well, reconsider. Reconsider why you're living together. And if you don't want to be married, then you shouldn't be together. If you're not willing to forsake other people and willingly cut off yourself for the sake of the other, then if I was that person you were with, I'd get out of there any moment because they're, they're they don't love you enough to do it. They don't love you enough because they love you enough they would cut themselves off from everything else to commit to you because that's what marriage is. And I'm glad I happily did that. I can't say the same for my wife, but it was a happy moment to willingly cut off. And again, I know that some of you are suffering the consequences of other people's choices. But be faithful where you are in the situation you're in. And as far as it depends on you, be faithful. Practice honesty. If we're to endure to the end, this is what God's requiring of us. We have to continue on. Realize that we might be running the race with Christ and we're going to experience things we didn't expect. We're going to experience pain. We're going to experience hardship. We're going to experience people bumping into us. We're going to experience the messes of life. We're going to experience all these different things, but we keep on knowing that at the end, Jesus waits. Whether it's his return or we die, we continue to race with and run with him. It's not in our boast. It's not about getting your church on a membership role or getting baptized. It's about following Jesus completely and entirely in every aspect and thread of our life until we go home. Until we go home. Let's close our message time in a word of prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, Lord, I pray. Lord, we are grateful, just as your word has testified, that you are compassionate and merciful. And there are some of us in this room right now, we feel pretty beat up. We're hurting. We know how much we've failed. Lord, we might be in situations right now where we know we're not in the right. Lord, please, we need your guidance. We need your grace. Lord, you are a a compassionate God, and you know very well that for some of the issues and problems that we find ourselves in situations right now, we didn't get into them overnight, and we're not going to get out overnight. But grant us the, the power by your Spirit to take that first step because you are the merciful God. And Lord, you will... You've already showed and exhibited your mercy supremely in Christ, but may we truly experience that mercy by turning away from our sins and embracing you. And if there's someone here, Lord, who is not yet truly trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior of their life, I pray that they might see the crucified, buried, and risen Savior, that they might know that they can have forgiveness of sins, that they can have new life with you, that they can experience your wondrous grace, knowing that it's not dependent upon our works, but it's receiving what it is that you have always, what you've already done in Christ. And then you will give us your spirit to live the life you want us to live. And Lord, for those of us who, who are followers of Christ, but have continued to inlo- in, live in and indulge our flesh, forgive us. And may we experience true forgiveness as we truly understand what it means to be forgiven and understand how Christ's death paid for that sin. And may we become the people you want us to, Lord, we are going to fail. We're going to fall. We're going to struggle. We're going to sin. And there's going to be suffering. And we ask for your patience. We ask that you not give up on us. We ask you continue to work in us, convict us, draw us near to yourself, and use us for the glory of your name. So, Lord, touch us, empower us, use us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.